Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. Cancel culture. It's uh, this cultural reality that many times in relationships and uh, public figures, when someone does something that maybe is morally objectionable, when someone does something that is offensive, there can be a reaction that would say, I'm going to cut you off, I'm going to cancel you, I'm going to boycott you. And, uh, and, and what happens is many times that happens so quickly because of our access to influence and power and judgment happens quicker than our ability to step in with wisdom and discernment about what has actually happened. And as a result, many times what can happen is kind of uh, a tearing and a ripping of relationships. And it can lead to a culture of disconnection. When person after person around you maybe disconnects from you, it ends up leading us in a place where we're just disconnected from one another. And, and what burdens my heart is that it, it really leads us to a place where people can't ever learn from their mistakes. People can't grow back from a mistake. People can't have grace. There can be no compassion. It's just you've done one thing, and so I'm canceling you. And it leads to destruction in our relationships. And it can be something that, that was done like 10 minutes ago or 10 years ago. You, can have had, you could have had like a, a life full of, of good behavior and in one thing happens and then you're canceled in the midst of all of that. To me, it's just tragic. What's interesting is when you open up the scriptures, you actually see not stories of all of the saints that never did anything wrong, you actually see story after story of, of people who had, maybe they had like a good direction in their life, but then they did this thing and it actually makes things go sideways and it's full of all of these unintended consequences, like one after the other. The scripture is actually full of that. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at one of those stories. I want to look at the story of King David, here's, here's a man who honored God throughout his life. And you probably know some of these stories, this story of this young shepherd who when this pagan giant named Goliath starts blaspheming the name of the living God, he goes in there, he's all mavericky, he's got his sling, he's gonna show this giant who's the king of kings, and so he goes in and he does this, and King David, who even when he had the opportunity to retaliate against Saul, who was chasing after him, he doesn't do that, he doesn't dare raise his hand against God's anointed. King David, who was called by God himself, a man after my own heart. I mean, his life, his, he was doing all the good things until he didn't. And he actually had a disastrous sin that he, that he did, and it, and it had some amazing consequences. And I want to stop, and I want to look at this story of David and consider a couple things. Really, I think it's a really fascinating study at how someone goes from being so good to having such an evil thing in their lives. 
But even more, how does David deal with his own sin in his life and in his heart? How does, how does he pull his life back around after something that so marked his legacy? Because here's what can often happen. We have a lifetime full of good things. But this one thing, this one final moment has the power to overshadow our finest moments. And that's very much what happened with David. It's very much what happened with David. So I want to look at that. I want to look at David and consider how did he turn that around. And then ask the question, how do we, how do we, you and I, when we have these things that, that we do, or maybe life might go a little sideways, and we didn't plan on it. Like, I don't know anyone that ever says, you know what, I, in, I intend on completely harpooning my marriage. I'm really looking forward to having a disastrous relationship with my kids. You know, I know my parents love me, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna make sure that we never have a reconciled relationship and we never talk to each other. Like, no one ever plans that. And yet it's a small series of decisions that lead you to this place where now you have these huge catastrophes happening in your life. And that was very much the case with David. He never planned on having happen what happened to him. See, David, in a moment of weakness, stepped into a, a, a sexual sin in his life, and it brought disaster on him. It brought disaster on his family. And ultimately, it, it brought disaster on the kingdom around him as well. And it's really sobering. And it's also very helpful to see how David responded when he was confronted by this. We're going to be in the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to look at two places this morning. 2 Samuel, verses, uh, chapters excuse me, 11 and 12. This is page 213 in the Orange Bibles. And we're going to be later in Psalm 51. But I want to start, and it's, and it's about two chapters of narrative, so I, I'm just going to recap it a little bit for you. But 2 Samuel 11, page 213, starts out like this. He says that at the time when the kings were out to war in the spring, because they wouldn't do it in the wintertime, they would wait until the springtime, and all the kings would go and fight for turf. Now, when David should have been out fighting those kinds of battles for his kingdom... Instead, he was chilling out at home. And that's kind of a first look at how sometimes we can go from these small steps to big sins when, when, when we do things that maybe we shouldn't. Like David should have been out there, and many times idle hands are the enemy's tools. So he's sitting there, and he's chilling out one evening on top of his palace, and very much it feels like the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Where, where Nebuchadnezzar is out on his palace rooftop in the evening and he's looking at, at his, his kingdom. He's looking at all that he's built. What a great king I am. And so David's on top of his palace enjoying kind of a relaxed evening. And then David looks out and this is what he sees. He sees a woman washing her, herself. Now, I don't think this was like a steamy bubble bath, and many scholars agree that she most likely was having some sort of ceremonial washing of herself, which is what she should have done according to the religious laws that the Jews would have embraced at that time. But she was washing herself, and David looks at her, and David notices that she's very 
beautiful, and he starts lusting after her, and he calls his servants and says, hey, who's that? She's hot. And they say, well, that is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Uriah is one of your valiant soldiers. Uriah is one of your faithful subjects. He's out fighting a war right now, and what David does, David calls for her to come to him. And I don't know what he was thinking. But it's not that she was out, you know, trying to attract attention to herself. She wasn't being a floozy, nothing like that. She was just doing what she was supposed to do. But when the king calls you, she was not in a position to deny the king what he wanted. He leveraged his power over her. He took advantage of that. He ends up having sex with her. And then he sends her back to her home. And he probably thought, you know what, her husband's not even home. I'm not going to be caught. My servants are loyal to me. Problem is, Bathsheba ends up getting pregnant. So David then, here's what David does. He goes, okay, well, shoot, Uriah's not even there. When it finds out, when people find out that she is pregnant, it's going to come back around to me. And so what he does is he calls Uriah from the battlefield, says, Uriah, come home. And he says, Uriah, why don't you kick your feet up, go home, relax, because he's thinking, if I can just get him to go home and be with his wife, then maybe, maybe that'll cover up my sin. But Uriah, see, he's an honorable man. He says, it's not right for me to, to like, live in, in luxury and pleasure with my wife being at home when God's ark and the people are in these temporary shelters. That's dishonorable. He says, I'm not going to do that. So David says, okay, well, then just come hang out with me. And David tries to get him hammered. He tries to get him drunk, so maybe his inhibitions will, will dial back a little bit. And so Uriah still doesn't do that. Uriah still doesn't go home. So here's what David does. David says to his commander of the armies, Joab, come here real quick. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take Uriah, and I want you to take your front line and put him at the front line, and you're attacking the city, and you guys all know, like you, don't, you only get so close where the arrows, you know, so they can't hit you, but I want you to charge the, the city walls, and I want you to put Uriah at the front end of that. And as you're pressing in, I want you to give the word, and then all the rest of the soldiers will pull back, leaving Uriah there. And that's exactly what he did. Uriah is killed on the battlefield. Joab, this commander of the army, he's doing what David told him to do, and so he sends a messenger back. And he says, hey, tell, tell David that we've suffered some losses, including Uriah. What's fascinating at the end of chapter 11 is David, this is his response. He basically, he basically just goes, oh well, people die. He was dismissive. He said, that's not my, I didn't, I didn't do anything. I mean, their arrows pierced him. I'm not responsible. This happens all the time. Then it says, after Uriah died, that David took Bathsheba as his wife. She bore him a son. And then the last verse in chapter 11 says this. It says that David did evil. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. He had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Nobody ever intends to harpoon their marriage. 
Nobody ever intends to lose it all with some miscalculation. See, here's what David did. David started by rationalizing it. He was dismissive, but here's what God saw. God knew what happened, and it displeased the Lord. How? How does this person who wrote much of the book of Psalms, how does this person who struck down Goliath, how does this person who had a a lifetime of a great track record, how does he go from honoring God to displeasing him? Having this woman and taking advantage of her and then so wronging her by betraying her husband, getting him killed because he was too coward. David was too cowardly to be on the field in the first place, so he sends Uriah. How do you go from this place of integrity to sin and deceit? It's a fascinating study because what we have to recognize is that David was doing right in his own eyes. I am the king. If I want something, I will take something. I am the king. I am able to deal with this. I'm just going to move these chess pieces around. I am the king. People have to listen to me. I am the king. I can get, take care of this and get Uriah out on the battlefield. I can take care of this. David never thought that he would be caught. And here's what we need to know. We need to know that nobody can deceive you like you. <laughs> like nobody can deceive me like me. And if you, if you don't believe me, just watch American Idol. Not like the latter episodes, like the early episodes. Because this person stepped up to those judges and thought, I'm a great singer. When I hear myself, I am amazing. They're out of touch with reality. Nobody can deceive you like you. And here's how it often progresses, is that we'll have this internal dialogue in our own hearts and in our own minds. This internal dialogue sounds something like this, where we start to rationalize what we're thinking about doing. It's not a big deal. I can just move the numbers around a little bit. I'm the boss. Nobody's going to really be able to notice. I can rearrange the schedule. I can move stuff around. I'm not being unfaithful at work. I'm just being friendly until it gets a little too far. Now you're a little too friendly. It doesn't matter because nobody's really getting hurt. Problem is everyone thinks that until someone actually does get hurt. And it always leads to someone getting hurt. If you don't believe me, you can find lots of people that can look at relationships with their mom, their dad, maybe their, their brother who ended up in jail, and all of them thought, man, no one was getting hurt until they actually did. No one has the power to deceive you more than you. And so, brothers, sisters, like myself, I'm speaking to myself here, those moments where we start to rationalize in our head, no one will notice. It doesn't matter. No one's going to get hurt. That's a flag on the field that we need to pay attention to. That's like the siren is going off. Hey, be careful. As God would say to Cain in Genesis chapter 3, he would say, be careful because sin is crouching at the door like a lion, and it's going to devour you. The moment you start rationalizing it in in your own head is the moment that you've deceived yourself. Here's, here's, it's going to devour you, it's going to destroy you, it lies to you. Sin is like a sneeze. It feels good at the time, and at the end, it leaves a huge mess. And everyone around you is picking up the pieces of that. A lifetime of great choices is brought down by a series of bad 
small choices. And those final moments have the power to overshadow your finest moments because sin deceives you. It's what it does. Let's listen to how God responds to David's sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, page 213 in the Bible. This is what God does. God sends Nathan, the prophet, to go to David. He speaks. That's what a prophet is. A prophet is a messenger of God. When he came to him, he said, and then he tells them a story. This is so insightful how God gently, tactfully confronts David. He says, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or his own cattle prepare a meal to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man. He says to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David is saying something wrong has happened and there needs to be justice. This has to be paid for. And then Nathan looks at David and he says, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arm. And I gave you all Israel and all of Judah. And then he says this, in all of this, if it had been too little... And isn't that the seat of often what drives us inside our hearts? I have too little acreage. I have too little time. I have too little appreciation in my life. I have too little money. I have too little vacation time left over. I need more. I'm going to take it into my own hands. That's what our, our desires birth inside of us. God says, if all of this had been too little I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his eyes? This is fascinating to me. Why did God go to those things? Why did he say that over and over again? I gave, why did he do that? Because what he was doing was he was pointing out the truth of David's heart and the the source of kind of this, this sinfulness inside of him. He's saying, hey, what's going on in your heart, David, was really the sin of pride and arrogance and self-worship. I'm responsible for this kingdom. 
I can cover this up. I'll take something that doesn't belong to me. No one will notice. And God says to, God says to David, did you forget where all of this came from? I'm the one who gave this to you. You, you don't trust my heart. You don't trust that I have the ability to meet you. If you needed more, I would have given you more. Don't you know, David, where your blessings come from? Don't you know who sustains you? Don't you know that I love you and that I care about you? Don't you know that I'm gunning for you? Don't you know that I'm on your side? Don't you know that I'm able to do all of this and more? How many times did God said, I delivered you, I handed this over to you, I supplied to you, I gave to you? David, your fundamental problem is this, that you don't believe the heart and the mind of God. Your fundamental problem is that you are turning to yourself to supply your needs because you don't trust that God's actually going to do that. His ultimate sin, listen, his ultimate sin and my ultimate sin and your ultimate sin when we're driven to these places is ultimately the sin of unbelief. God, I just don't believe that you're going to take care of me, so I've got to take it into my own hands. It's really a theology issue. And then, and then what Nathan does next is he pronounces judgment on David. He says, David, because you've done this, the sword from, will never be removed from your house and you're going to die for this. In the same way that you took Uriah's wife, brought shame to him, took something that didn't belong to you, your enemy is gonna come along and he's gonna take your wives and sleep with them in broad daylight to shame you. And that did end up happening. Look at how David responds in verse 13 of chapter 12. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He voices it. He confesses it. And Nathan replies, the Lord has taken away your sin, so you're not going to die. The next verse in the NS, the uh, New American Standard Version says this. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child will surely die. Your child will surely die. Listen, our, our sin has consequences. It always impacts more than us. Let's not forget that in this equation, Bathsheba was assaulted. She was taken advantage of by her king. She was gotten pregnant. Her husband was betrayed and killed, and she ultimately lost the baby she delivered. And now she has to live with the man that did that to her for the rest of her life. See, part of the lie of the enemy is that nobody else is going to get hurt. This is, this is just what I click on. This is just my decision. I can act this way, I deserve this, no one else is gonna get hurt. That's, that's a lie from the enemy. That's a lie from the enemy. He even says that what you've done has caused the enemies of the Lord to have reason to blaspheme. What's that mean? He's saying that there are people that don't believe in God the way that you do and they're looking at the way that you live and your actions are going to reflect the character and the heart and the mind of God, like your, your sin affects way more than just you. David, there's consequences for this. 
as a result of David's sin, Samuel tells us that the newborn son dies. Can you imagine what David's experiencing and feeling at this time? I mean, this is devastating. This is devastating stuff. His son died. Here's what sin does to us. Sin disintegrates us. Think about a person that's whole. And when we sin, and sin enters into the equation, now you have this thing that you've done or you've experienced or this thing that's been done to you even. Maybe it's not something that you did, but someone did it to you and it's their sin. And now it feels like you're smaller as a person. It feels like you've been ripped and torn. It feels like there's this thing of shame. And I don't want to bring my whole self to this relationship because if they found out about my past, if they found out about this thing about me, they won't love me, they won't accept me, they'll, they'll throw me out, they'll cancel me. See, sin disintegrates us. It literally makes it kind of fall apart, makes you get smaller. How, how do you, how does David, how do you take a life that's been disintegrated. And how do you reintegrate that? How do you take someone who's done something wrong and give them a pathway to be made whole again? Guys, our culture stinks at that. There is no mechanism for that. Did you know all throughout the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament laws and it's weird to us because they're kind of structuring their society in the books of Deuteronomy and Judges and Ruth, like all of those, the Torah and all of that time, they're, they're writing laws that say this, hey, when, when you've done something you shouldn't have done and you killed that person's donkey, here's how you make it right with community again. When you accidentally killed that person, you can go to this town and there's gonna be this place of refuge where you can be made whole again and if you show yourself to the leaders of that village and, and you, this, this is how you put your life back together again. And we look at their laws and we say, that is so silly. <laughs> but truthfully, like we don't have any mechanism to reintegrate someone who's been dashed to pieces. How do you do that? How does David do that? See, David's response, and I just see him, and, 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 and the rest of the chapter tells us that he just enters the ash heap, and he's wailing and mourning, and he's praying, and he's crying out to God. By the time his son turns, I believe it's on his eighth day, he dies. And so this was between the day the son was born and the day he turned eight days old. He died, and David is just mourning and weeping and wailing. And his son dies, and he picks himself up, and he says, I just hoped maybe... There'd be another outcome to this. How, how does David respond? How does he put his life back together? And how do we do that? How do we do that when, when it's your pride that drove your spouse away from you and now you're alone and you don't know what to do with that? When it's your poor financial decisions that led you into bankruptcy? When it's your past that brought you shame or your family shame? How do you put that all back together again? Well, David's sin was pretty spectacular, his response is really, really helpful because here's what David does. When he's on that ash heap, he just does what he always did. He fell down and he worshiped God. And he penned Psalm 51. 
And I want you to turn there with me. This is page 390 in the Orange Bible. And I just want to kind of wrap, wrap up this whole story just looking at David's response. And I want it to inform us how we would respond for these areas of sin and brokenness in our own hearts, how we would prepare our hearts when inevitably there's something that happens in the future. Here's what David says. David says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. You know what David doesn't say? Have mercy on me, God. I am the king. The kingdom cannot absorb this. This is too much. I don't deserve this. He doesn't defend himself. He's not rationalizing. He's not worshiping himself. He simply transitions from this place of of self-reliance and self-worship to saying, I am utterly dependent on you, God. According to your unfailing love, I've got nothing else. I'm not gonna build my case on my strength or my influence or my power or my resources. I'm simply coming open-handed and surrendered to you, God. David stepped into worship with the greatest display of brokenness. And friends, what I want to tell you is that brokenness is always the prerequisite for breakthrough from God. That surrender and coming open-handed before Him is always going to be that thing that sparks the heart and the mind as a catalyst for the breakthrough that we want from God. When we come empty-handed, this is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those people who don't come to God saying, look at all that I've got. I've got this figured out. No, no, no. When you come to God and say, I've got nothing else. I only have your unfailing love, God. That's all that I have. God says he's going to respond to that. He comes near the brokenhearted. David continues, wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. You see what he's doing? He's humbling himself. And this is so counterintuitive. Because if I'm honest, when I'm caught in my sin, usually the first thing I want to do is say, yeah, I acted inappropriately, but do you know what they did to me? Like if, come on parents, you know your kids. Like, kid, like kids do this, right? Well, she stole it first. He touched me first. And we smile. But guys, I regularly sit at the table with adults who do the exact same thing. I know I screamed at him, but he triggered me. I'm justified in what I did. I, 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 I know I'm a jerk at work, but they don't pay me enough to be nice. I know I gossiped about her, but you know what? She bad-mouthed me first. Isn't isn't that like the the oldest trick in the book? Adam and Eve, Adam says, well, it's that woman you gave me, God, that deceived me. Like that's what we do intuitively. And so this is so counterintuitive that when we're caught in our sin, when this stuff happens, we got to lead the way with brokenness. He says this, He says, I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. And this is so fascinating. Listen to what he says. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're right in your verdict. God, when you looked at what I did and your judgment came down on me, you were right. And you are justified when you were judged. I find it fascinating that that David says this. I have sinned against you and you only, God. 
<laughs> I'm like, wait, hold on a minute. You, did, didn't you sin against Bathsheba? Right? Did, didn't you sin against Joab? Didn't you sin against Uriah? But here's what David understood. David understood that his fundamental sin was that he was proud and arrogant before an almighty, everlasting, omniscient, omnipotent God who created everything, and his sin was one of unbelief. Now listen, we'll never get forgiveness, we'll never get freedom, we'll never get uh, released from this besetting sin until we realize that it's actually God that we've been sinning against. Until you see that you're stealing and saying, God, I don't trust that you're actually going to provide for me. Until you see your, your addiction to shopping or to food or pornography is really, God, I've got this anxiety and I don't know how to deal with it and I really can't trust your spirit to come and help me and comfort me and bring me peace in the middle of this storm. Until you see your sexual sin is saying, I'm going to choose my path over your path, God. I'm going to sit on the throne and you're not going to sit on the throne. Until we see our constant need to control things or worry, and I've got to always, man, you know, wear 17 helmets, and, 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 and I've got to keep them safe, because if I don't, then something bad's going to happen. Until we see that, that's saying, God, I'm the one that ultimately protects them, and it's not you, we'll never have freedom from these things that have a grip on us. That's why, listen, it's all about what we believe in our hearts. That's why as a faith community, we want to come alongside each other and be in enough relationship where I can say, hey man, I love you, but maybe you're believing something that's not true about God right now. We call that discipleship. We say discipleship is helping someone move from unbelief to belief in every area of their life. This isn't just are you reading your Bible. This is how are you doing with your finances. This is what, how, 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 how is your relationship with your spouse or with your parents? Going from, from, belief, uh, from unbelief to belief in every area of life, from the bank account to the bedroom. And David was saying, I don't really trust your heart, God. I was proud. I was arrogant. And what he was doing was he was taking ownership. He was owning his odor. He was taking responsibility. Listen, because as long as we make excuses, as long as we point at someone else, we're never going to find freedom. Until we say, you know, we're, until we own it, if we're making excuses, if we're saying, well, everybody sins, he who is without sin cast the first stone, we are sidestepping how egregiously we've treated one another, and more importantly, how egregiously we've treated God. You have to own it. You have to own it. David says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Then he says this. This is so powerful to me. And I just see David on the ash heap. And he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Because God, right now, I have a dead baby in my hands. And I am crushed and my life feels like it can't be put back together again. And I feel like I'm 12 feet down in this pit and I don't know how to pull myself out. But God, here's what I'm saying is true about you. That you are restoring and redeeming God. And you can bring joy and gladness when I felt despair. And I didn't know the way out. Let me, let me experience that again. I remember what that was like. How am I going to piece my life back together again, God? Then he says this, let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. 
Bones take a while to heal, don't they? But they do heal, and that's what it feels like. It's deeply meaningful to me, because newsflash, guys, your pastor is a sinner. And I've been in that place where I've hurt other people, and it feels like the bones are breaking. God, would you let me experience joy and gladness again? He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Here's what a person with brokenness does. They fall squarely on the grace of God. The good news of Jesus Christ is this. He says that there's forgiveness for you when you believe in him and that there is no condemnation. And when you fall on the grace of God, you know what that does on the inside? It's the only way you're going to be able to deal with the ugliness of your own heart. Because when you fall on the grace of God and God says, you know what, when you believe in Christ, I'm looking at you like you are perfectly righteous like Jesus Christ was. And he looked at Jesus Christ and said, I'm putting on you the weight and the sin of everyone else. And Jesus paid for and satisfied that debt so that when God looks at me, there's no longer condemnation for me. You know what that means when I have ugliness in my own heart? It means that I don't have to run from it anymore. It means that I can own it. It means I can say, gosh, that was disgusting. I can't believe my heart went there. And I can own that because that's not who I am to God. It frees me. It allows me to be honest with him and with others. And then David does this. I I, I love what he says next. This has been a powerful passage for me. What David does is he says, my heart has lost its calibration. I need to recalibrate. I need to rededicate my heart to you. And so this is what he says. He says, God, create in me a pure heart, one that's not divided, one that's not splitting the throne between you and myself or you and this thing that I want. He says, renew a steadfast spirit within me, one that's not cast about by the worries. He says, don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He says, once I'm calibrated, once my heart is set back on course, then, then I can now interact with other people. Now I can be a, a just king. Now I can lead my family well. Then I will treat, uh, teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Recalibrate my heart. And here's what he says next. He says, for you don't delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt burnt offerings. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about rituals where it's just going through the motions. Have you ever been involved with someone who there's been this sin issue, there's been this conflict that's happened, and and when they engage in this process, they're just going through the motions? Like, say sorry to your sister. You're sorry. You know, like, that's not real. That's not actual. And it feels like this person never actually came around. It's never the path to reconciliation. David knows that. He knows that it can't just be going through the motions. So this is what he says. Instead, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. And here's what he's recognizing. There is a difference between someone who has worldly sorrow and someone who has 
godly sorrow. Second Corinthians talks about these two dynamics. Someone who has worldly sorrow says, I'm sorry, I got caught. And godly sorrow says, I'm sorry, I sinned against you, I sinned against God. There's a huge difference between those two. Parents, you know it. You've seen it in your kids. Like I know when there's a brokenness in their heart versus when there's this hardness of heart. And David is saying, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be broken before you. I'm gonna have real godly sorrow before you. That's what he did. And in his humility, his godly sorrow said, I'm gonna accept the consequences because God, you are just and you are right. And listen, that kind of godly sorrow that's the first step towards reconciliation with God and restoration even with other people. Now, what we said last week is you can't guarantee reconciliation. You want to know why? Because, because when you engage and you expect that from someone else, that you have to, to, to reconcile with me, you know what that feels like? That feels an awful lot like an agenda, doesn't it? And I don't know anybody else that likes it when someone has an agenda for their life. You can't control what someone else does. You can only control you. But when you step forward with godly sorrow, it means that you can lead with, without regrets, even when reconciliation isn't guaranteed. He says this, May, and, then, and then he shifts in verse 18. But he takes responsibility for his own sin, and that starts to pave the way for these community impacts because that's what he says next. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Hey, my sin has affected other people. That's affected my family. That's affected my spouse. It's affected my community. God, would you start to rebuild that? God, would you take these bones that have been broken in community and would you allow them to rejoice? God, I'm seeking that out. Would you do that? He says, then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. O only after that wholeness is there. Listen, we don't, you don't come to church and say, I'm gonna go through the motions. When your heart is hard before God, God says, I don't care about those things. I care about, are you humble and broken before me? Only then does it actually make sense. Now, listen, I, I, I know in my own heart, and I know because I'm in fellowship with many of you guys, like there is brokenness in our past. There just is. There's brokenness behind us, and, and even, even if you're one of those few people that are perfect and never make mistakes, you live with somebody who isn't so perfect. And, and you have a, a spouse, you have children, and they're going to walk through something in their life. And as much as you want to protect them from that, you can't. But what you can do is you can point them to what does godly sorrow look like? How do you pick your pieces back up? You don't defend yourself. You don't make excuses. You accept the consequences. You own your odor. You step in and say, God, I've sinned against you. I'm gonna do everything I can to make it right. And you have a broken and contrite heart. That's the lesson that we get from David. That's how you make yourself whole. And God restored David. Now, there were always going to be consequences. And that's confusing because it's like, I've been, I thought I'd been forgiven. Why is there still a consequence? 
And it's almost like you have a two-by-four, and someone drove a nail into it, and you can take that nail out, you can take the sin out, but there's still going to be a hole in the board. Now, God restored David, but it happened when he humbled himself before him. The breakthrough that you and I want, the healing that we want comes when we're broken before him. And so as I was thinking about maybe how we can just wrap this together, I, I, I want you to consider kind of your past and your brokenness that's there. And then I, I want us just to stand together and I want to read David's dedication in verse 10 through 12. And I want to read that and I just want to internalize it and invite you even to step into memorizing this and let this be that calibration for your heart that says, God, this is what I want to be true. Will you stand with me? And I want to read this together. Verse 10 through 12. Let's read together. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Okay, we're going to read it again. I'm going to read it again. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Let's pray together. God, this is our prayer. It's the direction of our hearts. God, we're grateful for your grace and your mercy that's available for us when we uh, find ourselves in those positions where um, we, we need it and, and we just fall upon that. God, would we uh, make this the cry of our heart on a weekly basis? Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore me to the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Let that be our battle cry, O oh God. God, we run to you, and I just want to pray, Lord, for the brokenhearted. God, you say that you're near those who are crushed in spirit. Let these bones that you have crushed rejoice as we wait upon you. God, we run to you. We fall on your grace. And we praise you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.